Uh, how many of you took a foreign language? High school, college? Keep your hands up. Just let me see. Let me see all the hands who have taken a foreign language. Oh, interesting. Some of you have never had a foreign language. All right. What, uh, what languages have you learned? Just kind of give me a... Spanish. Spanish. German, French. Algebra 2. <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. Well played. That is one of our token high school students. How many of you are fluent in a foreign language? Anyone fluent? You and you. If you're German, put your hand down. <laughs> you haven't made Andy fluent yet? Slacker. Uh, I took French in high school, and I did very, very well in French. I, and uh, I can tell you a total of one word. Anybody speak French in here? Do you? All right. I test you if you know this word, because this is the one word I've, I've got for you. Ready? Avni. Do you know what that word is? Anybody know Avni? See you later. Is that what someone said? <laughs> no. Avni is the French equivalent of the English word UFO. My French teacher would be so proud. I was, I am serious. Look at Google it. It's O V N I. I don't know what the words stand for, but I just know that is the French equivalent of UFO. And here's your UFO gif because you need to have one. It made me laugh. Paul was amening that like a heathen who doesn't love little kitty cats. You not love the cute little cat. Aliens taking them away. Oh. I remember my first day in advanced, in seminary I had to take uh, advanced Greek. I remember my first day. Now, Greek th- that you learn in seminary is biblical Greek. So the New Testament was written in co- what we call Koine Greek, which hasn't been spoken for like 2,000 years or so. So at 8 a.m., right, I'm going to learn this language, advanced language. I had taken basic Greek two years prior. Do the math. So when the teacher first hands out this sheet with very simple sentences like, my name is John, like simple stuff. And I looked at those sentences and I saw a line there, a circle there, and that's about all I could do. My palms began to sweat and I was hoping that alien would take me with the cat, right? Because I had forgotten the fundamentals, I'd forgotten the foundation. And because I had forgotten the foundation, I'd forgotten the fundamentals, I couldn't do the translation, and so I desperately, you know, went home, I pulled out all the old Greek stuff, and I desperately started learning verbs and nouns and tense charts and all these different things, laying the foundation so that I could accomplish something which was to be able to translate Greek. We understand this in every instance of our lives. We understand that you learn fundamentals not because that's what you need to learn and you're done, but because You want to be able to do something better than that, your next step. Some of you all probably work with somebody where you say to yourself weekly, maybe daily, how do you still have a job? Anybody? (laughs) This is what they call in the black church the call and response. Anybody work with somebody like that and you respond, 
Yeah, yeah, we know somebody. I was talking with a friend this week, and we were just bemoaning this person. And he's like, how does this person still have a job? Like, edit your stuff, man. Like, honestly. Because the fundamentals aren't enough. You have to go beyond that. You have to take that next step. Whether we're talking about working a cash register or learning Koine Greek or doing a heart transplant, we understand that fundamentals aren't enough. You have to take the next step. And yet we frequently do not apply this very simple path of logic to our spiritual lives. We get content with the basics and we stay there for years and years and years. And our text today warns us that that is a dangerous place to remain. So if you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Hebrews chapter 5 so you can kind of follow along. If you didn't bring your Bibles, you can just grab a, one in the pew in front of you. It's page 1003, kind of all the way toward the back there. We're going to begin with uh, chapter 5, looking with, at verse 11. Now, if you'll remember, I'm going to summarize a little bit for you as you're flipping around or pulling out your phone or whatever it is you're doing. Uh, Last week, the author of Hebrews starts digging into some really deep content. He wants us to understand the very depths of Jesus. And he starts pulling at a very obscure reference from Genesis chapter 14, this story about Melchizedek. And then he fast forwards to Psalm 110 to talk about how that plugs in and how both of those texts plug into Jesus. And so he's, he's diving deep, deep stuff here. Then in chapter 5, verse 11, where we're going to begin today, he pulls the brakes hard, hard stop. He says, about this... We have much to say. And it is hard to explain because you have become dull of hearing. That word dull means lazy. Could also be translated like you just don't hear well. But when I think of what that means, it reminds me of when I am playing video games and Laura comes home from work. Because she will sit on the couch next to me and she will begin to talk. But I am busy saving the world from aliens. She doesn't have her priorities right. I am focused on this. In fact, we've hit this equilibrium in our marriage where she will stop and say, you're not listening to me, are you? And I realize I better pause this game and listen to her. So I pause it and I look to her and I say, I was not listening, continue. And then I listen, right? Because I had been dull of hearing. I couldn't hear that. I I knew she was there. I knew she was talking to me. I knew it was happening. I knew she was saying things about things. But what she was saying, I didn't know. I was dull of hearing. And that dullness is what's kind of happening here. He says, I I know you hear me, but you've become so dull, it's not worth me talking to you anymore. Ouch. For by this time, verse 12, you ought to be teachers, and yet you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Now, oracles is a word you probably don't use a whole lot, right? Oracles means sayings, the sayings of God. He's speaking specifically of scriptures. Like, we have to go over again the basic stuff of the Bible because you haven't learned enough of it, retained enough of it, kept enough of it to have the foundation laid out so you can continue. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. That's probably a bad translation. Because children don't live on milk, infants do. Ouch. 
You're infants. I can't tell you big, deep things because you haven't, you haven't expanded, you haven't grown. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. They've taken those fundamentals, they've added to them, put them into practice. It's, it's so familiar to them that they've been able to use it to distinguish now good from evil. They have a sense of discernment about them. That's, that's some intense language. And it sets up two important principles that I want to tackle quickly. And that is this, the importance of a good foundation. I mean, you see that, obviously. The oracles of God, the scriptures, function as the foundation for how we know who God is and what God wants. Otherwise, it's just me spouting off an opinion to you, or whoever you're listening to. It says, you know, I really think God is like X, and they say X. Or I really think God wants me to do this. I listened to a debate last night, much to my family's frustration. Uh, and I was listening to these, the one side is, is talking, and the other side is talking, and the one side is quoting scripture, and the other side is saying, well, the Holy Spirit has told me, really? Well, I'm glad you have a direct line to God that contradicts scripture, right? I mean, that, that becomes an opinion by a person, and we just kind of line you all up here and, and give you a mic and say, well, my opinion about God is, well, my opinion about God is, well, my opinion about God, right? We get nowhere with that. Nowhere at all. We need something secure, something, a touchstone that we can all go back to and say, okay, what did God say? That we can all see, all agree, all understand. And that is why God gave us the scriptures. So we need that foundation. That foundation is found nowhere else. He says here, the oracles of God. And yet there is a very important danger here. And that is that we need to be able to build upon that foundation. Like the purpose of knowing scripture isn't just so you can have knowledge in your head, but that, that it allows you to build up a life that practices and distinguishes good from evil so that he can have deep conversation, conversations with one another about Genesis 14 and, and Psalm 110 so that we might know Jesus at a deeper level. But if we don't know those very simple basic things, we can never add. Who lays a foundation and says, ah, that looks really nice. Let's go lay another one. If we, do we do that? Does anybody do that? No. You lay a foundation because you want to build something. The foundation is the, is, the, is the root. It's the thing that keeps you solid. But you build on top of that. What an awful thing to be a Christian for 20 years and not know your scriptures. Or 10 years and still be fighting and talking like pagans. Or 5 years and post the crap that I see on Facebook. If we aren't progressing, what are we doing? If we aren't growing, what good is all of this? If it's not leading us to deeper things and a, a more alive knowledge of Jesus, if it's not leading us to distinguish good from evil, what good is all of this? You're just killing your Sunday morning. Discernment is what is at stake here. Do you notice that there in verse 14? Discernment is what is at stake here. Paul says, and I'll give this to you, Galatians. There we go. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. He says, the works of the flesh. So here he's kind of setting up a dual juxtaposition. 
Which isn't to say that like, there's something in us, that spirit that's good, and our bodies are bad. But to say that there are certain impulses that come because we're human. And those impulses you might call the impulses of the flesh. Whereas the spirit, which is the connection we have to God through the Holy Spirit, is the impulses of life, which sometimes find themselves at odds with one another. So the works of the flesh, the things that emerge from my passions, my disordered disobedience towards the will of God, are evident, he says. It's obvious. Sexual immorality and lump everything outside of man and woman together for life and holy matrimony in that category. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. I should probably preach on sensuality. We live in a society, we dress, we talk, we listen, we act sensually. It's an interesting word. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I have warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit God's kingdom. They sang a song when I was a kid, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be when we all. It's a sad song, really, because we will not all get to heaven. And it brings no one pleasure to see or to say that, but it's true. And the problem is that these are not new things in the world. But the problem is that we are living in the age of delusion, the age of spin, the age of opinion. We are very good at lying to ourselves. You're all good at lying to yourself. I'm good at lying to myself. And preparing for this sermon... um, This text really hit me hard. I actually feel really um, I'm ashamed at how not far along I am in my faith. The text goes on and says because discernment is at stake Because we need to be able to see good from evil and because we live especially in a society that is really no longer sure at all of even basic goods and evils. Because we are so good at lying to ourselves and thinking we are something that we aren't. Because there will be people who spent their entire lives going to church who will not enter the kingdom of God. It is imperative for the sake of our souls that we hear these words. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and instructions about washings and the laying out of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And, and this we will do if God permits. 
These are vital issues that he brings up here. These are really important. And he says that if you've been a Christian for any length of time, and this isn't to say that like everybody should be able to teach a Sunday school class or everybody should be able to stand up and preach a sermon. It is to say that if a child, maybe a grandchild or your child comes to you and says, tell me a little bit about what you mean when you say Jesus rose from the dead, you should be able to talk with them. If your neighbor says, hey, listen, tell me a little bit about what the Bible thing is all. I see you go on Sunday morning. Tell me a little bit about that. You should be able to say something about it. That if you've been a Christian for any length of time at all, and your knowledge of this Bible is not to the extent that we have to go over again what baptism is all about. Now, some of you are new, and you're like, I don't know, what's baptism all about? That's fine. But if you've been a Christian for any length of time, we've got to talk about that again. I grew up in the Church of Christ, man. Every, every fourth Sunday was a sermon on baptism. We need to move beyond these things. We have an issue in our house. It is, it is a real sin issue. Emery eats like a savage. <laughs> Just a savage. And it isn't because she eats like, like she's not going to get another meal. No, she eats barely anything. But when she eats, this is her plate. And I say over and over again, Emery, eat over your plate. In fact, it's come to the point where when we're eating dinner, if I just say, Emery, she knows, oh, eat over my plate. Esri is one in some change. When she takes a little something and drops it to the dog, we're like, oh, look at that. It's kind of cute, you know. One-year-olds get away with stuff. They just get away with it, right? Chubby little faces, big eyes. They just get away with stuff. And, and that's fine for like a year, but even with that, I'm getting sick of it, right? Because once you're eight, we say, all right, go to the bathroom, wash your hands, brush your teeth, eat over your plate. Because what is cute at one is not cute at eight. Any parents? This is my call and response. Any parents give me a witness? There it is. So how many of us are eight-year-old Christians with one-year-old faith? Eight-year-old Christians with one-year-old knowledge. Eight-year-old Christians who have not progressed to the next step. Who haven't considered the next step. Here, the author uh, takes a hard turn, almost seems inconsistent with what he's been talking about. Because at this point, the author's been focusing hard on maturity, trying to get us to see the importance of maturity, trying to encourage us to grow on beyond that. And here he kind of dumps into apostasy. Apostasy is a fancy church word that means uh, you're going to hell. Verse 4. For it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. It almost seems like that doesn't follow. Like, how did we get from get mature to you're not saved? Like, what, what happened there? 
what happened there. Well, this is consistent with what the author has been doing all the way through this letter. Remember that his letter is very pointed, and he's pointed uh, at encouraging us to hold fast to the confession of Jesus. In fact, you might say the call response here is that Jesus is supreme above everything. And because of that great supremacy, whether we're talking about grace or salvation or holiness or beauty or truth, all of it, Jesus is supreme. And so the response with that call is hold fast to the confession of your faith. Don't let it go. We see this call and response kind of happen here. And we get these dire warning in Hebrews 2, 1. Just this one line that says, hey, listen, be careful. Don't drift away. And then we get a direer warning there in 3.12, which expands it and says, hey, listen, don't let there be an unbelieving heart in you because if you fall away from the living God, you won't enter into God's rest. This is, you know. And here we have this direst warning, something that is far more extreme in saying that once you have fallen away, you could have fallen to such a state that nothing can bring you back. So we've gone from dire to direer to direst. So what is he after here? What's, what's being pressed in on? Well, two important things, I think, are happening between this, this two, these two lines of maturity and apostasy. And the first is this. How does immaturity lead to apostasy? Well, it leads to it in this way. And we might use the phrase, failure to thrive. If you're in nursing or you work in the medical industry, you've heard that before. Usually a child, usually an infant, but... Uh, doesn't have enough weight, is losing weight, won't gain weight. They're failing to thrive. They're not growing. And if you don't grow, it leads to death. When Emery was born, uh, she was jaundiced, and so she was losing weight. And when the doctor said this, uh, I panicked on the inside. I was very strong and manly. I didn't have a beard yet, so not that manly. Some of y'all might want to look to yourselves. (laughs) But... But I was, pan- I was like, oh my gosh, like, she's losing weight, she's going to die. And the doctor was like, ah, put her in the sunlight, she'll be fine. And I was like, Laura, call the tan salon, we're going to show up there. Emery needs to put on some weight, she needs to thrive. Do we hold that same intensity? Because I know all of you would be the same, even if it's like your second or third child, right? I mean, we, we, we get panicked when it comes to the kid because we know that life is so precious, life is so valuable. Do you take the same intensity of care for our souls? Because if our souls fail to thrive, won't they just die on the vine? Now, Jesus uses this, this metaphor. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. What a beautiful thought. Beautiful metaphor. But what happens if we don't abide in Christ? What happens if we stay on the tree, but no nutrients flow through, no growth, no fruit, no anything? Eventually, we will wither and fall off or be cut off. Failure to thrive. So from immaturity, it's only one step further to apostasy. Because of that failure to thrive, what happens when the time of testing comes? What happens when things get really hard? What happens when things begin to fall apart? What happens when everyone, whether we're talking about a faithful Christian or a non-faithful Christian, says, why God, why? We've all been there. We will all be there again. 
What happens in that day if you have not added to the foundation? You'll crumble. And so that's what the warning is here for, to say to you, listen, this is what happens if you, if you are not maturing as a Christian. If you, this, is, this is the danger here. And the second danger is like it. This, you cannot be brought back. What does that mean? What is that after? Well, notice that what he talks about is the crucifixion of Jesus. So there came this moment in your life, if you're a Christian here today anyway, there came this moment in your life where you had a, a collision of emotion and logic. And the emotion in your heart said, I am a really terrible person. And if there is such a thing as heaven, I don't belong there. And this sense of conviction, this weight, as we look at just the Ten Commandments, and you say, man, have I, have I lied? Have I cheated? Have I lusted? Have I taken God's name in vain? Have I done any of these things? And I say, well, you can check them all off the list, man. All of those are present in my heart. And so that weight bears down on you, and you say, God, help me. And then you hear this wonderful message that Jesus lived and died for your sins, was raised to eternal life for your justification, and all of that can be imputed and given to you so that all of your sins are washed away. And that brick of conviction which smacked you across the face and said, man, I need to change. I need this thing. I need this life. It changed you. But what happens when you continue in sin and harden your heart? I don't have another message for you. There's not a second gospel like, there's not another thing that we can say, oh, well, you know, here, that we've been keeping this in our back pocket because we knew at one point, you know, you weren't going to really follow too well. And so here's this, here's this thing that you didn't know about that's going to reconvict your heart. There's nothing else. There's nothing else. There is but one gospel. And if you've heard it over and over again, and you've been sitting in church, and you've been able to harden your heart to it, and it hasn't brought you to your knees, and it hasn't brought you to tears, and it hasn't brought you to repentance, and it hasn't brought you to maturity, and it hasn't done any real work in your life, there's nothing else that will. And so, in a very real and literal way, there's nothing that could bring you back. If that message doesn't call you to add to the foundation, nothing else will. To illustrate this in verses 7 and 8, I'll summarize. Uh, he uses the, 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 the illustration of a field. If you take a field and you, you water it and you plant it, you fertilize it, and it grows good fruit, it's a good field. If you have a field and it's muddy and rocky and the soil is devoid of nutrients, it doesn't matter how much fertilization, it doesn't matter how much water, it doesn't how many seeds you put in it, it doesn't grow, or it just grows thorns and thistles. What do you do with that field? You bulldoze it, you burn it, you cut it down, you don't use it for anything. And all of that is really scary. Now, all of that is also um, brought some people and some Christians to say to themselves, well, man, Am I too far gone? Anybody ever thought that? 
Oh, you keep your hands down. That's okay. I'll raise mine. I've thought that. Your preacher has thought that. I have wondered, am I too far gone? Have I messed up one too many? Like you just, you look at yourself sometimes, you say, how is it possible? And so there are some who have wondered, well, man, maybe I'm too, maybe I am too far gone. Maybe this is speaking to me. Maybe I am the one who has wandered, especially those of you, and I know there are some of you in here who have wandered away for some length of time. You say, well, maybe that's me. Well, let me say something nice since I've said a lot of things that aren't. It doesn't have to be. In fact, the author of Hebrews thinks very much that it's not. The author of Hebrews is speaking to these people because, listen, you know, you don't warn your kids because you don't think it's possible for them to obey. You warn your kids because you love them. You say, don't touch the stove, stoop. I mean, you don't say that. Don't, don't touch the stove because you'll burn yourself. And now you know what Ezri does? Daddy's coffee, hot. Hot. When she sees the stove, Hot. We don't warn people because we don't think they can hear. We don't warn people because they are too far gone. We warn people, don't go too far so you don't get too far gone. Does that make sense? That's a very different thing. The author of Hebrews is speaking. He's writing this letter. He's saying, look at these things. I am warning you about these things because I believe that you can grow. Because I believe that you can mature. Because I believe that God is not done with you. But you must step up. And grow. You must take that next step. He says here, though we speak this way, very hard words. You've grown dull of hearing. You're lazy and you're listening. You haven't been learning. You could possibly fall into this category where we find out, man, you weren't a Christian this whole time. All of these things are standing in front of you, but beloved, notice that word, underline it if you need it, beloved, Beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to what? You're looking at your Bible. Things that belong to what? Salvation. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we, that is the author sort of speaking that royal, we, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope unto the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but rather imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promises. And what a strong and beautiful good word. The word coming from here saying that, listen, you are not lost. If you're hearing this word, if you're hearing this voice, you are beloved. Things that don't belong to judgment, but things that belong to salvation. That God is not unjust, and he's, he's looking at you, and he's seeing your heart. He's seeing you here today, and he, and he sees that you are pricked. And thinking to yourself, man, how can, I, how can I step forward, and how can I grow more than I have been? How can I take next steps? He's not going to overlook the love that you have. He's not going to overlook all of these things. But yet there's this desire, this earnestness that we must have if we bear the name of Christ as, 
as Christ did in his own life, then there must be an earnestness toward holiness and God and growth and goodness and righteousness and a love for the poor and the oppressed and a love for one another within the community and a heart for those who are lost. These things must be alive in us. Foundation is not enough. You need to begin to build the house. The house is evidence of salvation. It's, it's, it's where I take that step and I say, how in the world could I call myself a Christian and still have thought that thought? Maybe I'm not a Christian at all. And then I look back at the year and I say, no, I was worse last year. <laughs> I, like, I know that's funny, but that's not a joke. Like, that's what we do. We look and we say, man, no, I was worse last year. I knew less last year. I... I I drank more last year. I I thought worse things last year. I fought more last year. I was more selfish last year. I was more greedy last year. But God is taking me step by step. Listen, sanctification, becoming holy, becoming like Jesus doesn't happen overnight. It's a growing process. The, The thing is that, not that you leave this room and you're magically healed of all of your foibles. It's that you leave this room redoubled in your commitment to follow Jesus. And that you're actually going to do something about it this week. Monday morning comes, you open your scriptures. Monday evening comes, you get on your knees and pray. When the temptation to do whatever it is that you do comes, you say, not today, Satan. I'm walking with Jesus, right? That's what it's about. And that you stand there and you look back next year and you say, no, I was worse. I was worse in 2018. So God's doing something. I am convinced that I am not too far gone, that God is doing something in me. I am convinced that God is doing something in you. I am convinced that God is not done with us, just like the author of Hebrews in speaking to the Hebrews says, God is not done with you. But heed the warning well. Heed the warning well. And don't lie to yourselves. Don't let your heart become hardened by sin. Don't let these things cover you over. So you say, well, it's not that bad. No, it is that bad. Well, it's a small one. No, it's not a small one. We pursue holiness like it's our business because in Jesus Christ it is. Because beloved, we can feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation and those things are ours not because we earned them or deserved them but because Jesus gave them to us and empowered us by his Holy Spirit to live new lives so this week live a new life let's stand as we sing